Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms if you'd like. For those of you that are new, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to have real conversations with real people in the trenches that know what's going on. And we love talking with people all around the world at all levels. And as for our listeners, we love you guys. You have spread the word of our work and we can't thank you enough. So we hope that you will continue to like, click and share. And please keep in mind that all of our shows are archived. And so you can listen to your heart's content. We've been doing this for about 10 years now. So there's lots to learn from many, many people all around the world. Now, before I introduce you to our guest today, we are going to be uh, actually talking about a human rights movement, which is really quite interesting. And I think you will uh, totally enjoy. I want to do a couple of shout outs. So first, I want to shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. Uh, this is where you can find all the memory cafes pretty much around the world, though many of them are not active in-person cafes. There's about a hundred of them now that are doing virtual. And the nice thing about virtual is you don't have to, they don't have to be ones in your area typically to participate in. Um, Personally, I do a couple of them. One is with Arthur Senior Care, and we do those on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. Central. So that would be 2 p.m. Eastern Time and noon mountain time and 11 a.m pacific time and then also on wednesday um the the third wednesday of each month i also do a memory cafe with artist senior living in minnesota in woodbury and you can join us there as well those are at one o'clock central time too so just reach out to me if you'd like more information And Coral Health is still extending um, their gracious, um, their graciousness when it comes to allowing people to download for free two of their apps. One is Music First, the other is Coral Face. So just go to Coral, that's C-O-R-O health.com, and you can go ahead and download uh, one or both of those if you'd like. And of course, Dementia Map is something that uh, myself and Dave Wiedrich, who is the founder of the Memory Cafe Directories, just launched in November. Um, the Dementia Map is really a global resource directory. And so it has all kinds of interesting 
information and it'll be constantly building out over time. So visit it often and recommend it to those who have resources that should be listed in it as well. There is both a free listing and uh, paid plans that uh, people with services, products, or tools can enter into uh, the directory. So before I introduce our guests, we're going to listen to the Footbar Walker and we'll be right back. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle? to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. So today I'm really excited. I'm, I get to introduce you to Daniela Greenwood, who is an international consultant, keynote speaker, and published author specializing in human rights policy and practice in long-term care. She did her dissertation um, and took a, a really strong, heavy look at human rights practices as it relates to people living in their later stages of dementia. And she recently developed a human rights framework for large age care providers in Australia, which would be what we call here in the U.S. our long-term care uh, communities. Daniela works with innovative senior care organizations internationally in practical ways of translating and implementing human rights-based approaches in the world of real practice. This includes implementing key operational shifts, such as consistent staff assignment and supported decision-making frameworks. Well, welcome. I am so excited to have you on the show today. You are always doing cutting edge things. And so I can't wait to have this conversation. How was your holiday? My holiday so far has been um, fantastic. A bit of a holiday and a bit of work as well. But I've been excited to talk to you and to um, and to laugh with you again. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget our time in California. It still, every time I think about it, it makes me laugh. Makes me too. I was <laughs> describing it to my sister and I couldn't quite capture, of course, what was so funny about some of the moments where we laughed and she kind of looked, she kind of stared blankly at me when I said it was so funny. We were, we were laughing, rolling on the floor and she went, yeah, it sounds hilarious. <laughs> had to be there. <laughs> Just one of, And then you had to have the inside joke because everyone else around us didn't get it either at the which, time. <laughs> which made it funnier. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's, let's have you tell people if uh, a little bit about yourself, if you've been personally touched in your own circle of friends or family with dementia first. My, my, um, my grandfather, before I knew anything about dementia, um, 
I, I look back and understand that he was living with dementia and uh, especially at the end when he wasn't using words anymore. But when you don't know anything about it, um, it's, it's like a big mystery to you. And I think back then it wasn't spoken about as much as it is today. Um, but personally touched since, since I um, started volunteering and working uh, with older people in particular, um, I've been, some of my closest friends have been living with dementia. And so that's, as, that's the personal touch for me, Laurie. Um, I'm wondering too, if you can share a little bit about your history and how the heck you got <laughs> into the senior market and the studies and your dissertation. I mean, you've really just kind of climbed the ladder once you stepped into this space and have explored a lot of different things. So if you can give some people some background kind of uh, as your history, um, yes. even before you stepped into this space and what a difference that was. It's, it's, uh, if you told me, if you told me um, that I would be working in this space and passionate about working in this space, I would have said, what? Because <laughs> I come from um, a lifetime working in the arts, actually, from, um, from playing music live to having a couple of record deals here in Australia, first with Sony Music and then with Universal Music and a publishing deal with Warner Chapel Music um, and touring with that and recording with that. And, and after sort of the Universal uh, record deal, I became really interested in, um, in the engineering behind the scenes side. So I still had my Universal record deal, but also had my own studio here in Melbourne um, and went over to Los Angeles for a reconnaissance to see if I wanted to live over there and especially get more involved in composition and uh, sound design. And I met a wonderful man called Hans Zimmer and uh, a 10-minute meeting with him turned into a three-hour meeting and I decided, yep, LA is for me. So I got a special talent work visa and lived and worked in Los Angeles for three years in a lot of post-production composition and um, and sound design and toward the end, sonic art. Um, and uh, at the end of that, um, I came back to Australia and didn't renew my visa. I was completely burnt out, absolutely um, just feeling... I moved away from the tinsel, you know, Los Angeles, you take away the tinsel and under that is more tinsel. Um, <laughs> I came back, came back to Australia burnt out and actually really lost and started volunteering in a local nursing home and that's what changed my whole wow. life. Yeah, my first day even volunteering in that nursing home and then just wanting to be in that space. I met... Um, people living with dementia and in particular one woman that I refer to a real lot <clears throat> called Kathy who um, wasn't so much using words anymore and was pretty young just in her 60s and uh, the staff described her as being really aggressive and I don't know whether it was a rebel in me I could see in her eyes I know this sounds crazy but Laurie maybe you'll understand you know how you can see in people's faces and eyes that they've got a sense of humor Oh, yeah. I, I really sensed that in Kathy and found out later uh, that she's Scottish 
and um, and that I thought, well, of course she's got a sense of humour. Then um, uh, and the only the only words I'd heard her yelling out in Scottish were swear words at the staff, which I thought was really funny. Um, but meeting and connecting with her and really having a playful time and meeting Kathy in the moment without judgment because I didn't know anything about dementia. I didn't know Kathy's history. I didn't know to be afraid of her because she has this aggression. Just human to human connection without all of that judgment. And I saw what was possible in the moment with people living with dementia. And of course, if something's possible in the moment, there's endless in the moments. Yep. Yeah. You know, there was a woman in my mom's nursing home, very much like the woman you're describing. Everyone thought, what's wrong with you? She didn't talk and she was in a wheelchair and she had this tray and she would just smack this tray and then she would yell and, and moan. And people were like, just stop. And it's like, she's got a need. She's got a need. And to this day, if there was one person I could talk to, it would be her. Yeah, I do. She was that. just filled with this brilliance and her and I got this connection going and you know, I, and I learned to read what some of her needs were. And one of them was a really, really a basic one. We were outside at a picnic. It was this beautiful sunny day, but it was a little chilly and everybody had coats on and she had a, she had a blanket around or no, she didn't have a blanket around her, her legs, but I noticed that her pants and her socks, there was this gap. And it was really simple. She was cold. And so I asked the staff, can you go get her a blanket? Oh, she's fine. She's got a jacket. No, no one else. It's just her. And I'm like, you either get a blanket or I'm going to the director and I'm getting a blanket. And they were like, well, what do you mean? And I said, you heard me. She's got a need. And so they got this blanket. I wrapped it around her. She got this most brilliant smile. She instantly stopped and she just enjoyed the day then. Yeah. But it was just so small, but it, it is, it's about those connections, those moments and paying attention to what's really being said, even if there's no words being communicated. Absolutely. And what, wouldn't we all love someone, you know, when someone snuggles you in with a blanket, you at once feel kind of um, cocooned and warm and, and that someone has cared enough yeah. to do that. And, of course, you don't know how that woman's been spoken to all morning, how she got out of bed, how someone with that much spirit who, who was spoken to like a child may not even remember why she's angry, but there's a sense that there's been a real injustice and and you can even see it in people's bodies when they stand firm and and you know that there's something that they're protesting and it's real so it may not even be an unmet physical need as much as it is the real protest against these unjust circumstances that people find themselves in. Yeah, just it's believing people that I think I think you really that's what I learned. Uh, believing people, if someone is upset about something, it's real. Yep, and the humility to say, look. We may not, I really want to find out like you did. I really want to notice and, and try and find out what isn't working for you because as a fellow human, I, I want to help make things better. But I also know that I may not be able to find out what it is. So all I can promise you is in that moment, I will be with you 
as a fellow human being, I will believe you first and foremost because I don't have access to the reality that you may be in in that moment. But I know whatever you're protesting and re- and responding to or demanding is real. That's, I think, I believe you is so important and just as important is I have enough humility to know that I may not always be able to get to the bottom of, of what's happening for you. I think the OECD in their latest report about dementia just said, look, there really hasn't been that, that much, that, that we haven't really discovered much new about yeah. the condition. It remains a mystery. And yet because it's so medicalised and I think, you know, I feel sorry for medical professionals really, they, that humility doesn't come easy to them because they want to have the answers. They want to be able to give you a simple formula so that you can decode what's wrong for a person, you know, and, um, and I think that's part of the problem, that humility in saying I'm going to try really hard to work out but if I can't, work out what it is. I want you to know as a human, I'm here with you in the moment just to be with you in your distress and which is incredibly powerful. And often it's just an attitude of the person with the person who's distressed more than anything. It's a countenance. And if you've been really trained that 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 these are symptoms of dementia that that aren't real that that mean that that person's experiences aren't real then you know when someone's crying about maybe missing their mother I've seen staff sort of laugh and say come on Ethel let's have a cup of tea what kind of scary world would it be if you genuinely believed something scary and everyone around you was smiling about it yeah well, and, and it's giving that comfort. I mean, how many times have, I know for me personally, and I'm sure to all of our listeners and you as well, you know, somebody can't fix something, but if they're just there in an yeah. authentic place to say it's, it's okay, I, I still stand by you. I'm still with oh, yeah. you. I'm not judging you. We're just, we're going to work our way through this, whatever that That's- means. So, you know what, as fellow humans, we're going to fumble our way through. And we know how it is even with really good friends when they've had a death in the family or a terrible breakup or, you know, terrible things that happen to people. There's nothing we can do. Of course, we can't make that better, but we can say I'm here with you. And, Laurie, I must have, I learned something really, really, this was revealed to me on an even deeper level when um, in I live in Victoria, Melbourne, Victoria in Australia, and we've had some of the most severe um, lockdowns in the world that lasted seven months and people, you know, were in their apartments and you to, to go out, you actually had to have a permit, you know, to go to work that, that said your exact work hours were only allowed out for one hour a day for shopping and you had to shop on your own. <laughs> Um, it was really strict and we got on top of it. We've been 64 days or something now COVID free. So um, we did get on top of that. But I, during that time, I felt really helpless because I'm not working on the floor anymore. So I volunteered in a particular area that was filled with people living with dementia who had COVID. Um, and there were a about 29 people living there with COVID who were living with dementia. 
And the first thing, because in my mind, I'm thinking, can you imagine already being a bit confused about the world? And then on top of that, being surrounded by people in full PPE 24-7. How scary it must be. You've already got maybe issues with hearing just because you're older and you spend half your time reading faces, reading body language, and you've lost all of that. And you've lost familiar faces. So there's, it was it was hot and exhausting wearing it for four days, just getting there and changing that PPE after you'd been in every room. But so it's the full with the clothing, um, the mask, the shield, the goggles, the gloves. It was you couldn't see any of you but my first thought was imagine how that would be but but by the time I started volunteering in there um it had been happening for about a month that that staff had been wearing all of this gear and do you know that people living with dementia there took it in their stride so apparently initially they were like what's going on but over that time they had learned to deal with it and taken it in their stride if that is the case, can you imagine what else they're just taking in their stride? Yeah. So they weren't protesting. They weren't screaming. They weren't going, this is really scary. They were just getting on with life. So all the times that they actually do become distressed and do protest something, it, it, it's obviously it's something even worse than being surrounded by scary people <laughs> in PPE. Bless you. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like how how much they'd taken that in their stride and let's believe people, that let's believe people, even well, if we can't make it better or understand the cause or the reason. Well, and I think one of the things too we have to keep in mind that a lot of times people with dementia don't make waves is because they're trying to protect themselves because they still don't really know what's going on and they're trying to fit in. And they're probably figuring these people aren't hurting me and how much energy that takes to and to, and to believe that you're going to be safe and it's going to be okay, even though none of this makes sense. And um, I, I think that's one of the things that people miss is not realizing what that takes. I mean, we know what it takes individually, but we're not doing it all day long. It's absolutely exhausting. At the yep. moment, I have um, a cl- very close friend who is experiencing, um, uh, it's been quite a rapid um, a rapid decline at the beginning, uh, immediately after the diagnosis, because I think he um, he really was able, because he had quite a rhythm in his life and he was able to sort of put off um, and hide some of those symptoms. But now that it's kind of out and everyone knows about it, I watch him at a dining table and I can see him so aware that that he's not on top of things so that as soon as a waitress comes over, he'll go to pack up the whole table and um, to, to do things right. He's so aware that he's overcompensating. And I just think of the energy that must take to be constantly on, to be constantly monitoring your environment monitoring yourself, monitoring people's reactions to see that you haven't done anything in that moment that might be embarrassing or that might be cause for alarm for other people. You are so right about that energy. 
And and I think especially people who are living in institutions with with professional staff, that kind of energy. Can you imagine the other places that energy could go if you truly did feel not judged and safe and um, like someone had your back? Yeah. Yeah. Big, big, big difference. Big, big difference. Now, one of the things I I really want to talk to you about is when I met you, you know, we talked a lot about relationship based and, and that was kind of different from patient centered care to me that took it kind of to another level, but you, you've taken it to a whole nother level. So why don't you tell us where you're at now? Cause I find this really interesting and of great value that more people need to hear. Thanks, Laurie. Well, um, as, as you can imagine, coming to dementia from an arts-based background, I came, as we spoke earlier, with a real sense of, I started, as you, well, when, after I volunteered, I started working as a personal carer. So I worked as a personal carer in um, residential aged care, which is long-term care. Um, and while I was doing that, I studied um, for an undergraduate in uh, in what you call over there rec therapy, recreation therapy. So over here, we call that diversional therapy. Um, and then I worked as a lifestyle coordinator, but it, it, I absolutely approached that work with a sense of um, play and, and, and a sense of um, curiosity and really a real interest in meeting people. And I found that no matter what role I worked in in aged care, I could still have those moments of deep connection with older people. But I found as I was working in the system, more and more I I kind of almost had to do that. It was almost secretly. Like it it was so not part of that institutionalised system that that um, those moments that I was so drawn to and where I found the real humanness, the system I worked in was just set up to work completely against that. And, and it was one of control and management and, um, and just this sense that everyone had control over these people's lives because they had some kind of diagnosed deficit. So there was no sense that these were were fellow citizens who had every right to continue just getting on with their lives in the context of dementia, in the context of getting older, in the context of their own vulnerability. Um, and, and so working, then working in different management roles and executive roles, national dementia strategy manager and then the work that that you became um, aware of which was in my role of national strategy and innovation manager for our care to implement that relationship based approach but all the while all of this happening within a system that is aged care that is residential aged care or long-term care um, I then left our care and worked um, as a consultant and became just so reacquainted with all of those deeply embedded institutional assumptions and all of the the paternalism, which is this legacy of the medical model, which empowers people to really feel they can police older people and people living with dementia. Um, 
And recently I looked at all of this because I knew I, I came across organisations that said, we want to do that relationship-based thing and or we're already doing it. And I'd go and work on the floor and I'd find horror. I would find this, not the big horror stories that we see maybe in the news or that gets captured on video, but just this day-to-day casual horror of this paternalism and this just bossing people around for their own good and everyone feeling really good about themselves. No one was hiding it. This idea, and it was really getting mixed up with, we're doing it for their own good, are we? Or are we doing it because it makes the day run easier for us? So I kept coming across all of this and yet people were saying, oh, relationships are so important. And that's what I looked at in my dissertation, this whole journey from these amazing moments we can have with people in the moment, but that happening in the context of these deeply entrenched, institutionalised, medicalised ways of thinking and, and treating people Terrible, terrible ways of treating older people. No wonder everyone dreads moving into these places. Um, it's not the food. It's not. It's it, it's not even the, the look of the place. It's the fact that people lose complete control. They, all of the things that are so vital to 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 being human and to and to being equal citizens with other citizens. They're completely eradicated once you move into one of these places. So. My dissertation found that really what was needed in these spaces definitely pointed to a human rights framework. And, of course, it should always have underpinned the way we support vulnerable people, first and foremost, a human rights embedded. But at the moment, it's so embedded in medicalised approaches and and medicalised and, you know, medical ethics and about the way we treat people and and what we value and what we feel we have a right to control. So I looked at that and and really found the need for organisations to have a role, a new role at the executive level with codified power above clinical, a human rights um, leader that sits above clinical because, of, of course, clinical is really important, but that's one part of people's lives, someone who can balance and weigh out everything in the context of human rights um, and, and that that person and an ethics committee with experts on it, experts in human rights law, experts in ethics, experts in disability who can really help um, tease out some of those really difficult cases and situations where you come up against, um, you know, what, what other people might think is risk. But to be, to be truthful, most of the freedoms that I saw and most of the horror that I saw, it didn't involve those big moments of risk. And yet in the public, when we talk about let's balance risk and dignity of risk, there's all these really big ticket items like, you know, the texture of food and should someone be allowed to walk out and maybe get hit by a car or, you know, all of these really, really big ticket items. And yet these aren't the things that make up people's lives. And I think in, in, a, in a professional setting, in a, in, a, in a long-term care or residential aged care setting, um, the day-to-day freedoms of people are the, are the freedoms that are, that are just casually um, breached. 
the human rights are casually breached um, and, and, and people do it thinking they're really good people. They think they're doing it for people's own good. Yeah. I, I have to jump in and make some comments because you made some excellent points. Um, one is the medical model. Um, I know here in the U.S., and, and I dealt with this a lot with my folks, well, the doctor knows best. The doctors don't know. There's not enough research. There's, I mean, there, there's so many unknowns. And people are finally realizing that the doctors don't know. The researchers don't know everything that we have told ourselves that they that they know they're like the gods and we so- like to have that comfort don't we but there's been no breakthroughs for there's not even been much many breakthroughs in medication for 20 years has there really no, well, no. And, and, and and no closer to finding a cure yeah and so of course it isn't a medical matter let's let them keep working on cures and all of that sort of thing but it, um, like I live in Australia and it, it, dementia is the leading cause of death for women in Australia and the second leading cause of death of all people. Whether even if they find a cure, it's changed us forever. Dementia's in the world yep. and, and they haven't found a cure. And so, of course, the medicine doesn't have the answers. It doesn't even have the right questions. <laughs> Well, exactly. And the the other thing that I find interesting about the medical model, you had mentioned also kind of the the clinicians and the clinical model, which is all established by regulations. And when they don't really know the cause, the root cause of things, we've got, we've got these regulations that I don't want a red flag. I don't want to be called out. You know, all of our communities have to meet these needs, but it's, you know, we need to re-educate that whole system. And then you talked about the institutional system, which is a word we all hate. I don't care what institution is. We all think it's over-controlled and we lose our individuality and, and all of those things. And then um, you had talked about, you know, the, the small things uh, or the big things don't, don't make a life for a person with dementia, which is true, but it doesn't make a life for the rest of us either. And I think no, that's true. I see people fighting in Australia, resident right to eat, to have runny eggs. And it's like, you know what? If I was managing a home, I probably wouldn't serve runny eggs either. And if you think that's what makes up someone's freedom and citizenship, that's a pretty cynical view. You know, I I think that runny eggs for older people do pose a greater risk and it may be, you know, they want the freedom to have runny. This is not what freedom is. Freedom is freedom is freedom in the context of our relationships with others where people don't treat us like we're not here or we're less than or we're second class. These are not older people are not spoiled brats who demand all their wishes be met. They just demand to be treated like fellow human beings I I've got to pick up one thing you said which was so brilliant this idea around the standards and and your legislative so we have the same thing here with government but I've got to tell you Laurie I've worked in Canada in the US and here and I haven't worked in one home that um that reads and that deciphers those standards in the same way. And what a nonsense that is. That is why I've, I've seen policies put in place because a government representative will visit and say something like, oh, that woman's been in her room for a bit. Have you checked on her to see if she wants to come out? 
bang, the next day, every resident has to be asked to come out of their room every 10 minutes. So I've got to say, I think, I think we blame a bit on, um, on, on the legislation and on those kind of powers. And this is why you need an ethics committee. What we don't need is a clinical governance team in control of interpreting legal powers, of interpreting government standards, because then you're going to get people's opinions. And I'm telling you, you do get them because every home I've worked in reads those standards and they 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 translate into diff- a different range of policies. You need a human rights ethics committee to say, wait a minute, you're being over-compliant here. They don't actually say that that you have to do this. You've said we need to do this, this, this and this. Do do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not leaving those policies up to a lovely quality manager who thinks that she's interpreted the standards because 20 years ago this is what the government said or because that's what risk means. Uh Uh-uh. Do you know in in Melbourne when, when we had our rights curtailed here during COVID, when we would had to stay, it was a huge human rights issue. There were breaches of people's freedoms. It had to go through our parliament. It had to go through. It was that serious that they were going to take away people's freedom of movement, freedom to leave their homes. It was so serious. Even though it was going to save lives, it had to go through our government. And yet we, we, we lock people up and then we let some quality manager determine what the policies are going to be. And she or he may say, well, everyone must come out of their room for breakfast. It's good for them. Then that'll make us more compliant. I'm sorry. That's way too much of a big, that needs to go through the equivalent of a government, which is your human rights ethics committee in the organisation that really teases out the ethics of the situation, the risks, the, the law, and, and come and says, look, this is what we do, but in, only in these situations. Of course, paternalism is going to happen, but patern- we, we need to establish that there's some kind of a threshold. And that threshold has to be immediate and severe risk to someone's life or the life of someone around them. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is even when we were in in California together and whenever I have this conversation, and especially whenever anyone brings up the medical model, Laurie, invariably you'll hear someone say, well, there's high acuity in these places. There's lots of complex clinical needs. You know, this is – so what they're doing is creating a false dichotomy Following a human rights approach does not mean sacrificing excellent medical and clinical care. And everyone needs to stop pretending to be confused about that. Excellent clinical care and medical care is fundamental to a human rights approach where it is needed. We need better and more excellent clinical care of older people and people living with dementia. But a human rights approach says that cannot extend to all areas of a person's life, to the day-to-day decisions and choices and freedoms that make up people that are so 
that are so fundamental to citizenship and human rights, they, they cannot be at the mercy of some nurse's opinion or they cannot be at the mercy of whether the daughter thinks mum should be up at seven or doing more exercise. They cannot be at the mercy of other people's opinion or to institutional routines. Well, she has to be up because breakfast is only available for an hour. So we, what we've got to do is really tease apart ex, what, what clinical is and what it isn't. Yeah. Well, you know, with that, I mean, there's a saying, you know, see me, don't see my dementia or don't see my illness. And really, you're talking about uh, the inclusion of the whole person. Yeah, not, see not, my dementia is an experience. Yep. Dementia is it's now, as I said, it's the leading cause of death of women like me in Australia. It's it's part of our human experience. I know people get really grumpy when you say it's, an, I, I'm not saying it's a natural part of ageing, but I am saying it's a huge part of our experience of being human. Yeah. And, and, and saying, I don't see, no, I want to know more about it. If anything, the people living with dementia now are the pioneers for the rest of us. I want to know what it's like because there's a really good chance that's how I'll end up. Yeah. I, I don't want to hide it. It's, it makes up part of people's experience of, of their experience. It, otherwise, it becomes about who people were. Mm-hmm. And then you, get, then you get people saying things like, oh, mum would have never done that, which is exactly equivalent to saying that this person before us now doesn't exist. That yeah. isn't mum. Mum only exists in the past in something I remember. But I'm and, comfortable with. Yeah. And 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 I'm going to impose that on her now. So all these things about maintaining people's identity, what a nonsense. Identity is fluid anyway. And how do we know how the experience of living with dementia and growing through that is changing a person? And changing how they weight their values if you ask younger people whether they want to move into if whether they'd ever move into a long-term care setting never I'd rather be dead but you ask people who are in that situation and they're like well actually I really value living on my own and my freedom but at this stage I really value the comfort of knowing I can press a button and get help when I need it so people weigh up things differently as they experience themselves differently in the context of their experience at that time and of course we've already said we don't know we don't have access to what people with dementia are experiencing in the moment we don't know what there I remember this guy Ron when I used to do gardening groups he used to be a church minister and gardening was a big part of his life but toward um, the end of my time with with him he would be at the gardening group and he would smash the table with his fists really hard. And I knew him really well. And I, I just could not work out. Of course, like the first thing I looked at was pain because when you pathologize people's reactions, you not only discount them, but you're also losing touch with your natural feelings that you'd even look for in yourself. Is that person in pain? What are they responding to? If you're told him smashing the table is just a symptom of dementia, you could miss things like that. 
So when I knew that I couldn't work out what was happening for him and I just wheeled him out of that room and I sat with him in back in his room and everything was fine again, I had to accept that I didn't know what was happening for him but I knew that something wasn't working for him in that gardening group. I, don't, I wanted to know why so that I could make things better because I cared about him but in the end I couldn't work out why. I just had to believe him that whatever reality was happening for him in that moment, whatever from the choir of past relationships and people had been assembled in that moment that was real for him that I couldn't see, I, I just decided to believe him and and sit with him in his room and and let him know I was with him. So saying, well, that's out of character, dad's always loved gardening, he would never hit the table, we don't know how that person's responding to what they've brought into that moment with them. So then judging it even based on someone's past values or past perceived identity, that's how dangerous that kind of thinking is, Laurie. It's so, and it comes from a lack of humility. It comes from that medical heroics of I've got all the answers rather than dementia's a mystery. That moment with Ron, with Ron that's a mystery to me. Yeah. But I, I believe it. You know, it's interesting, your background, because I, I was making some notes as you're talking, you know, and coming from the arts, to me, uh, people in the arts are about engagement, they're about exploration, they're about getting emotional responses, they're about creating uh, this, this environment that sparks life, you know, and that everybody reads that art a little bit different. And, you know, when you can create that type of space, that's when culture change takes place. When you really get, I mean, the true elements of what makes, what makes us feel safe and comfortable, what allows us to have joy, what allows us to be able to feel safe enough to cry or to be upset. And like you said, just to be with somebody in that space. And so, I think a lot of uh, companies, in my opinion, hire the wrong leaders because they're coming from, and again, medical model is important, but, but it's not the foundation of anybody's life. If you ask yeah. anybody, what do you want? They're not going to say, I want, I, I want to live within a medical model. They would rather like push it away and not have to worry about it, though most of us have some type of thing that we have to deal with. But we deal with it by incorporating it into all of our life, not controlling and pushing the rest of our life down. And not making your whole life about assessed deficits. Yeah. Like I, I woke up this morning um, and... I didn't go for a walk. I know for a fact that my New Year's resolution is going to be to get fitter, to eat healthier, <laughs> to I've got a lovely lake that I'm looking at through my window and I should be walking around that every morning. It wouldn't be a huge imposition on my life and, and I know that I'd feel um, 
less depressed. I know that I'd be healthier. I know that I'd even think clearer. But Laurie, I've got a pretty good idea that I'm going to mess that up like I did last year. (laughs) And the bottom line, the bottom line is we all make these kind of decisions and failings. But once you move into residential aged care or someone's got control over you, um, you'll be wheeled into that blink and exercise group, whether you like it or not. So the well, you spoke about culture change, and I think that if anything, um, my my absolute commitment to a human rights framework, um, and I think not, I, I don't think I've insulted, but I definitely think I have called to account the culture change movement and this idea that um, that we can train staff to be nicer people, to be uh, to think better thoughts. That's what I've moved away from. We've got a culture change movement that has got some pretty good aspirations. You know, it comes. It, an organisation will say, "Oh, we're going to do culture change, and and we're going to have these aspirational goals of like, you know, flexible meals, and we're going to try and get consistency, and we have to do co-design." and get staff buy-in. Now, I just want to stop you right there. A human rights lens completely does away with that, yeah? There are non-negotiables that need to be in place before you even think about staff training. If you talk about those tiny moments of being present with someone, let's Pull back from that, Laurie, on everything that's weighing down on that, even practically in in an institution. So someone's wrenched out of bed in the morning, pulled into a dining room because they don't have a no-wake policy. They don't have breakfast that got lasts all day. They, they haven't got training that says you don't speak to people like that or not training policies that, that are non-negotiable. So the culture change movement's been lovely, but it's kind of painted these really key, just the most basic operational changes as nice-to-haves. They should never have been nice-to-haves. There's some absolute operational non-negotiables that need to be in place as a bare minimum to support human rights practice. They are not aspirational goals. Secondly, we've got a culture change movement that says all these things need staff buy-in. I would ask, imagine now it's a maternity ward, right? And you've got someone saying, oh, it's just so hard for us to get the nurses to feed the babies. So we're going to do a change management, bottom up change management program and get their buy in to feed babies. No, we feed babies here. If you don't feed babies, you don't work here. You don't get a second chance. Yep. And I've read codes of conduct for almost every organisation that says don't use pet names, but everyone's calling people love and darling, and there's no accountability. There is no consequences. In a human rights framework, we don't have to talk you into that. We don't have to work on your culture or your mind or make you a nicer person, which is lovely, but I'm not leaving the human rights of really vulnerable people down to the fragility of your mood down to the fragility of whether I can actually hire people who are nice people. I'm going to have some practice non-negotiables. You learn them before you start working here. I'm not going to talk you into them. 
We do not wake residents. We do not speak to them like children. We do not tell other people their private information. We do not help ourselves to their belongings without asking. We have flexible breakfasts that last all day because that's bare minimum to supporting staff in to, to residents to sleep in as late as they want and to get up at their own time. All of these things that need to be in place before we even think about staff training. I am so disinterested in, in, in these hearts. My previous work, which was let's work on people being nice to people. Let's get them to see the whole person. It's failed, Laurie. It has failed. You walk into any nursing home now and you still see people. I don't care what model it is. I don't care from small household to big institutions to hospitals. People are still spoken to like children. They're still spoken about their back, behind their back in ways they never should be. They're still, they're still treated like something that can be bossed around for their own good. We have failed. Culture change movement has failed. Mm-hmm. That, that needs to be put to the side. And the first thing, as a first recourse, we need to get a human rights framework that sets up bare minimum operational non-negotiables. I don't talk you into it. You just mm-hmm. do it. And some practice non-negotiables. I'm not going to get into your heart and mind and then leave the human rights of someone up to what mood you're in or maybe even what your, what your cultural background is or none of it's at the mercy of that. This is how we practice here. If you work for whatever organisation it is and you don't behave this way, you don't get to work here. I I like that you brought up people's moods because I think so often people don't even understand how they bring a mood to work or, or into life in general. And everyone else can see it and they think they're hiding it. You know, um, but it it comes out, and not just in words, but in their nonverbals. I mean, the of whole, course, we're the all whole. human. Yep. This idea, leave all of that at the front door. What a nonsense! This, we're not robots. Yeah, we're not. I think if we're honest with, you can have a bad day. That's that's what you can have a bad day. You can even have a bad staff member. But what I can see in the real world in terms of practice, I can police that. And that's what needs to happen. But having said that, I must say that I'm a firm believer. that, And, of course, consistency has to be a bare minimum non-negotiable. You have to have consistent staff assignment. At the bare minimum, because round about 70% of the people who live in long-term care or skilled nursing places can't answer your resident surveys. They can't. They cannot express their, their in-the-moment preferences, often with words. So we need people around them who know them really well, who can begin to read those nonverbal expressions of preference and will and desire and even connection and protest. So as a bare minimum, we need consistent assignment. I think one of the things that the the general public don't know is that in any skilled nursing or long-term care home that is running on a traditional rotating roster where you may see the same people, it may look like a consistent team, but they'd be on a rotating work with this group of residents this week or this day and then the next I've, I have found 
between that that any one resident in that model any one resident has between 28 to 49 different people having access to their naked bodies in a month wow in a, cons- a strict consistent assignment model that would be more like four and five four or five different people so on the most basic level how many different people do you want having access to your naked body now i mentioned now imagine you're living with dementia and you you've got these strangers who aren't reading care plans there's no way that that these nursing aides come to work and then read eight care plans it doesn't happen and and often English is a second language anyway. Of course, what we know about people that really matters, you probably wouldn't read in a care plan anyway. We know it as we spend time with people, we get to understand little nonverbal things. As one resident said to me, um, I've got a new carer. Um, and, and, and he mentioned something about, oh, it's the training. And I said, oh, that's disappointing because I'm involved in the staff training. What? He said, no, 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 they can do all that stuff all right. I mean training for me. So no matter how good the nursing aid training, once someone's working with you consistently, they get to know just the little ways that you want your body cared for, where you like your things kept. What time that you want to wake up and have a coffee with your newspaper before you get out of bed. That when you're in the shower, you're really self-conscious and you do want something to cover up over the top of your legs so that you can sit there and not feel completely exposed. You can only learn these things over time with people. So operationally at a bare minimum, we need that consistency. So all of this working And all of this is working to go back to square one, which I did in my dissertation, back to the first moment of that deep connection and presence. It's looking at all of the things that weigh down on that institutionally, including what I myself bring in. So we have these gorgeous arts-based programs coming into residential aged care. It may be a beautiful choir in the afternoon or... um, Elder clowns coming in to do deep presence work with someone. But who cares about those things if the rest of people's lives are filled with those tiny moments of horror? If anything, if at at the best, those really great moments of art or engagement are a short recourse from the other tiny moments of horror that make up people's lives, that's at best. And at worst there's something even more horrific. They're used to manage people. You know, you'll see a care plan that says, Jill will be involved in the choir to to reduce her behaviours. You know, this kind of horror and this kind of fake authority. And, and not only that, I would argue that people bringing these gorgeous arts-based things in need to stop in 2021 and think, what am I bringing my program into? and thus condoning, and thus even perpetuating. Because when you talk to the leaders of these organisations, the first thing they'll tell you is, look at our amazing intergenerational program. And it's like, I've just done a double shift on the floor and I've seen horror. I don't give a... I can't swear. But I don't care about your gorgeous intergenerational program when people are treated like that the rest of the day. So it it almost becomes an excuse for these people 
So I would, you know, or, or look, we just send all of our staff away to this really expensive workshop. Great. Even if that workshop worked, they're going to come back and try and implement it into a system that works completely against them doing that in the real world. So organisations need to stop spending money and passing the buck onto staff training. They need to get together as leaders and implement the non the bare minimum basic non-negotiables, no wake policy for real, flexible meals for real. We can do it in airport lounges. We can do it in aged care. Just do it. We can land rovers on, on Mars, okay? We can do flexible meals that are available all day. We can ensure that we have consistency 100% of the time, not just a consistent team. We can have a no-wake policy. We can say that there will be no childish artwork, that we will not be getting grown-up citizens to make snowmen in craft groups. We can have these absolute non-negotiables in place and we can demand certain practices from staff rather than sending them off to this culture change hoo-ha that wastes money and makes people feel good but staff training is always an easy answer for leaders because they can say, if only our staff could be less task-focused and yet they've got strict meal times. Mm-hmm. So it victim blames and perpetuates these terrible practices and yet the staff themselves, I've worked with thousands of them, Laurie, over the past few years, they don't want to work this way. Mm-hmm. They do not want... I, I remember my first day as a carer, and I, I was horrified and it was a really good organisation I worked for, but the reality of the way we treated people's bodies, how quickly we worked with them, what, how we got them pulled into lounge rooms and like that was a horror to me and I kept looking round to see if other people were horrified too. Yeah. To see, to get, but, but they weren't because yeah. it had been beaten out of them. It's about saying to staff, guess what? Your first gut reaction wasn't wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No one should be treated this way. This is awful. Well, this has really been an interesting, interesting conversation with you. As always, I can't thank you enough for your your time today. And people can get get a hold of you. We've got the email, your phone number, your Twitter, uh, your LinkedIn account. And then there's also a marvelous YouTube uh, that you have on human rights. And that kind of says everything that that I could tell you. Um, And for an organization to watch that YouTube... Um, you know, you don't need me. What I think if you if you do watch that YouTube, you'll have a really good start with a human rights approach. And Laurie, I did want to say one thing very quickly. Mm-hmm. I know I'm so aware that some of your listeners are people living in their own, many of, most of them living in their own homes, often with a partner, husband, um, mother, father, brother, who's living with dementia. I wanted to make it really clear that these, these non-negotiables and these practices practice-based references that I'm making are for people living in professional institutions. It's a completely different matter with people living in their own homes. In in a professional institution, you have 24-hour-a-day staff who are fresh. 
It's not like being woken up in the middle of the night. You know that you're not going to be your best tomorrow. You know if your partner is woken up in the middle of the night and you're woken up that you're going to be, you're going to have a terrible next day. I'm talking about often those things are the reason people move into institutions. These institutions need to be set up to support people. As one family member said to me, if drugging him and forcing him to fit in with routines was the answer, I could have kept him at home. So just really making that clear that it's non-judgmental for families. This is about institutions that say, yeah, put your loved one here. We're experts in it, but still have set breakfast times and meal times. And like they're surprised that someone with dementia is distressed. If you take people living with dementia, this should be your core business. Distress should not be a surprise. Your entire institution should be set up to support and be with people in that moment. It's the only reason they're not living with their families. That's perfect wrap up. Perfect wrap up. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, I, I just, uh, I love how deep you go into things. And I mean, you really, you look at things from all different angles and you're not afraid to say, hey, there's a better way to do stuff. And we have to look at things in a different way in a different fashion. So I would encourage people to go and watch your, your YouTube and dive even deeper into this conversation. And if you're looking for a consultant, you know, just reach out to Daniela. She's, uh, she's absolutely fantastic. What you see here is just how she always is very passionate (laughs) is very much a big picture person and team player to make the world better. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. It's been a joy talking to you as usual. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.